Welcome to How Art is Born, a podcast from the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver about the origins of artists and their creative and artistic practices. I'm your host, R. Alan Brooks, artist, writer, and professor. Today I'm joined by Denver-based musician and Cosmos Crusaders, Wes Watkins. Wes, say hello. Hi, I'm Wes. So, uh, I want to say, I don't talk about this a lot on this podcast, but like for a lot of years, I fronted, like I I would hire jazz musicians to back me up, you know, you know, just from uh, rapping on stage and stuff like that. And uh, one time I was doing a show at Ophelia's. Now the thing, being a band leader um, who's rapping, is that I can't really like, because I have a whole bunch of syllables to say, so it's hard for me to turn and be like, okay, let's speed up or let's slow down or something like that, right? But I've learned like my communication with the eyes or, and uh, one, <laughs> right, right. <Yeah. laughs> but one time you showed up and it was when I had uh, Alex on drums, Alex Tripp on drums mm-hmm. and uh, Tania on keys. Mm-hmm. And you showed up and you did a couple songs and you just directed them so well. I was like, how is he directing my band better than, <laughs> better than me? But it was really dope though. Cause oh. it was like, you, um, you got them like uh, doing hits at the right time and stopping at the right time. And uh, I felt like you um, called them to sort of to a higher level. So that was just a dope experience. Well, I feel like that's a little easier on a trumpet. I could be like, boop, boop, beep, beep, beep. Hey, hit what? <laughs> right. da, 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 like, it's different, you know? Right. Rapping, it's kind of hard, like, you to drop. You know, when I think about dropping, like, two beats in a rap verse, mm-hmm. oh, that's, that's that's fucking difficult, you know? Yeah. I say uh, one of the one of the dopest things about having, like, jazz musicians with me on this stuff, because obviously hip-hop... You know, there's a lot of freestyle. And so jazz musicians are trained to improv, right? So there was a period where I was performing where at least once a year, some random drunk chick would walk on stage and start trying to talk to me while I was rapping. You know? And uh, there was bonk. one point where I would like have to, bonk is right, right. Yeah. <laughs> like I was holding the mic and I was rapping and like this one girl was talking so loud that I had to like put my hand over her mouth because it was getting carried in the mic. But with jazz musicians, I can be in the middle of a song cue them to go into something else, freestyle, make fun of her, get her off stage, and then go right back into the song, you know? Uh, so that brings me to wanting to know... Wait, wait, can I... Oh, yeah. You're, okay, look. You know what's fun about funk music? Yeah. No, look, I shouldn't be doing this, and I shouldn't really be repping this, but I'm sick of it. <laughs> so, like, what I like to do is I play, I play trumpet. Yeah. So playing in funk bands... When I'm not rapping, I'm not singing, mm-hmm. I don't got to worry about cueing a band. I just turn to them. I turn the bell of my horn straight to their face, and I start playing real loud. <laughs> That's great. I wish I had that. Well, hire me for more gigs. <laughs> right, you got it. Right. <laughs> like, is security. not nice. a chance. Now, once recently, eligible put clothes, you know. Yeah, sadly. So once recently, I'm like feeling sad one day. I go and busk in front of eligible to pit. Mm-hmm. I'm busking there. I'm t- I stopped busking, and the homie on the pedicab walk up. We talking. Now, there's a big lane. Everybody walking in between the lanes. I mean, mm. I'm talking, you know. This lady walks up, and I'm like maybe a foot away from the wall of eligible to pay. Mm. And my case is right in front of me. Mm-hmm. And a lot of cash in my case, you know, mm-hmm. I'm busking, you know. And uh, this lady walks up, and I stop playing. I go, hey, like, please don't walk behind me, lady. Right, right. Or she pretended like she didn't hear me, and she pushed past me. I said, oh, yeah, that's it. Go figure, white lady. Go figure. And this lady turns back. She, Why do you think you could talk to me that way? And I said, well, you should have listened to me. I asked you not to walk behind me. I told you my case right there. I didn't feel you comfortable walking by there. Everybody else been walking. There. She, he's in the way. I said, he ain't in the way. What's going on? She says, well, I don't understand why you could talk to me like that. So what do I do? I've been busking. My horn's in my hand. I Look at my homie. He says, no, Wes. I said, oh, yes. I turned to when I blast. I go, la, da, da, with my horn, right? I go, la, da, da, go away. La, da, da, go away. La, da, da, go away. La, da, 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 go away. Black people walking down the street, they go, go away. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think it is so inappropriate. Spatial awareness is a thing. There is no reason anybody should ever be walking up to an artist such as yourself. Mm-hmm. Assuming they can just come and talk. Right. Go wow. away. Mid performance in the middle of a song. Get, get out of here. Yeah. Go home. You drunk, Becky. <laughs> uh, 
All right, man. So let me. Uh, when did you when did you first start playing trumpet? Like, how'd you get into this? Okay, I can never remember a time when I didn't want to play trumpet. Huh. Uh, the, the my earliest memories before I wasn't playing trumpet, I was asking my parents to play trumpet. Okay, love Stevie Wonder. Yeah, big part of Sly and Family Stone and gospel music. Yeah, trumpets. It always hit me. I don't know why. Huh. I was singing. I was playing keys, and then in middle school, um, you know. At, out in Green Valley Ranch, I went to MLK, you know, I'm a okay. little kid, so okay. I went to MLK, and I was like, can I be in band? Right. They said they can give instruments to us, and my parents were like, all right, so I get in the band, and there was a dude by the name of Martin Martinez, Now hmm. Martin used to play uh, uh, with um, Lou Soloff, Lou Soloff being the lead trumpet player from uh, blood, sweat, and tears. Okay, Lou Soloff was that trumpet player. Hmm. And he played Tonight Show. Okay. Martin played with him on the Tonight Show Let- er, Letterman. Okay, in Vegas mm-hmm. at the time, I think. And uh, I think I'm not sure, but I think that's I, if I recall correctly, it's on a, a long prominent time. talk show. Yeah, <laughs> he played on a prominent talk show. Yeah, and uh, so I ended up. That was my middle school band director, mm-hmm. and my sister. Sister right above me got into DSA as a drama major when I, and she was in ninth grade, her freshman year. And everybody said, Why don't you go to DSA? Yeah. I said, I wanna leave Mar Martinez. He's a trump player and I I really like kicking it, even though like there was ruckus to be had. Mm-hmm. And then I went to DSA for high school. Okay. And then Martin was kind enough to like grace me with some lessons and my my parents did what they could, but we couldn't do a whole lot. You right. know, like, and uh, kind of blessed me and taught me a bunch of shit. And hmm. That's trumpet. See, you know, okay, so there's a lot of musicians, uh, performers, period, who um, who perform through, like, a filter, right? Like, um, they don't exhaust them, their souls completely. The reason I bring this up is because when I see you, the times that I've seen you play or sing or really just anything musically, it feels like, there is no filter. Like you are just coming completely out of your soul. Do you feel like I got that right? Well, yeah, because I'm not. I don't mean to hurt nobody's feelings, but I'm not making art for anybody else. Hmm. Sometimes I hate playing music. Hmm. It's miserable. It makes me feel miserable. It just exaggerates all the things. I relive traumas, past traumas. Mm-hmm. But I, for whatever reason, I feel like it's the right thing to do, so I have to do it. Yeah, it doesn't mean I want to do it. Hmm. So then what is what is the act of uh, playing music, creating music in the moment? What does it do for you? Well, it depends on what's happened in the day, I suppose. Huh. You know, um, I would like to say it depends on the gig, but I suppose if I want to be candid and a critical thinker, the gig depends on what's happened with me. Hmm. If I'm going to be a front man, I have to admit, like, Everything I do is going to be dependent upon how I'm feeling. Yeah. And not just that. Obviously, you know, being in any live band, there's collaboration. But, mm-hmm. like, I'm lucky enough at the end of the day to have such amazing musicians who would not only intuitively know me. Right. But will follow me. I'm lucky in that regard. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a whole lot of uh, non-consensual sax a phone <laughs> on look i'm serious i'm so sick of non-consensual saxophone <laughs> um like you look at me and you play intentionally that's mm. one thing you look at me you just playing over everybody i don't give a fuck go yeah. home you yeah, drunk I've, sally i've definitely fired musicians for doing that i haven't yeah no i believe in a world of reform Making reform in another band. I'm trying to <laughs> <laughs> trying to get my gigs handled. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like, like, okay, like, like recently I had a cat. I really rep one of the best musicians I've, I've ever known. Okay. He bails on me on a gig that he doesn't know how much it means to me. It's one right. of the first gigs I played when I started the other black. Okay. He doesn't know. Like, I'm, I, I cried. Huh. He was supposed to be my ride. He had the bill. He had another gig. Gig got pushed back. Wootsie, wootsie, blam, whatever. But, you know, you find out five hours mm-hmm. before a gig that's two hours away. Right. How wow. do you find a quintessential member of a rhythm section? That's something. It's very difficult. Now, right. don't get me wrong. I've done it before. Yeah. And that cat's been one of the motherfuckers. 
who has shown up in that situation for me before. Nice. But he bailed too too late, you know. Yeah. Now it made me sad, but at the end of the day, I wasn't making that music for those people. Mm -hmm. Just that those people believe so much in the music that I was making that, like, I felt, however I was feeling, I had to show up for Mm -hmm. If I couldn't, 10 years later, you know, it's been about 10 years. It was one year I didn't make it, and it was one year I was on tour. So this would have been the seventh year. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so you, you were talking about, like, you believe in redemption, which I'm interested in hearing more about. Because for me, if I have an artist that's um, playing over everybody, like, that, I don't I don't think you can train somebody out of that. That's ego and insecurity, well, look, usually. the thing, I, I guess my point of that entire story is this. I'd hire the motherfucker again any day of the week. Yeah. Because he's bad at. And because... As long as you can admit that you made a mistake, even if you make the same mistake again, as long as you're working actively towards not making that mistake, I'm with that. I'll hire you again. You can make the same mistake again. And I'm going to have the same conversation. I'm going to be the same loud-ass motherfucker on the microphone like, hey, this motherfucker fucked me over, but I'd hire him again. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I would do it indefinitely, but I am with you for like an, a number of chances. Also, I feel like if somebody's giving their best effort and trying to do better, I'm down for that. Yeah. But there are people who are like sort of militantly uh, for themselves, you know? And so. Uh, I just think those people don't. They're so conflicted about who they are that they don't know. Yeah. Well, because like uh, the heart uh, of, for me, like having jazz musicians is that we all create something that could not have existed without this specific group of musicians, right? Like it's all a yeah. different experience every time. So if somebody's not committed to having that experience and they're just about themselves, it throws everything off, kind of. Well, absolutely. Also, this brings up a question I had for you that I thought about. Okay. Kenny G is jazz. (laughs) Miles Davis is jazz. Uh Robert Glasper is jazz. I don't know that I definitively agree with all those statements, but that's what our world says. Mm -hmm. So my question that I have is what is jazz? That's a big question. I actually don't feel like I'm qualified to answer that. Well, I just mean to you, I, I feel the same way. Like, I don't know. I'm not qualified to answer that question. Well, I, I would say more, you more than me, right? Because, like, uh, I'm hiring jazz musicians to back me up. I'm much more of a hip-hopper. But I think hip-hop is jazz. I mean, they're certainly close cousins. Well, I think about I think about origins of hip-hop, right? Yeah. I think about sample-based culture, right? Mm-hmm. I think about DJs playing records that are instrumentals and MC's coming up on the park in New York and rapping over that. Right. And then I think about uh, Charlie Parker Mm -hmm. and Ornithology or Ella Fitzgerald and How High the Moon. Mm -hmm. And it's the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Contrafact, Mm -hmm. you know, to rewrite the melody over a tune that already exists. Mm -hmm. And that is hip hop. And then I think about The Last Poets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When the revolution comes. Right. And then I think about Gil Scott Heron. The revolution will not be televised. Right. It seems like the same thing to me. Hmm. Well, it feels like you answered the question way better than I could have. Well done. Well, I just think that <laughs> oral history is jazz. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, specifically, black American oral history? Does that feel... Yeah, but I also think about Ifa from Yoruba of uh-huh. Nigeria, and yeah. I think about oral history. Okay. I think that I had a buddy mm-hmm. say to me years ago, Nick Hammerberg, I mean Nick J, Petals of Space, he says, the human connection can water any seed. He writes his song, he says, the human connection can water any seed. And I was the only black dude in Petals of Space. But it was Nick J who said that to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think to connect on the human level makes it really interesting when I started thinking about it was safer, probably always, mm-hmm. to pass things down orally, to pass them to your community and your kids, your family in general, mm-hmm. orally, than to write it down. Even though we knew how to write it down. Mm-hmm. We said, Maybe this is a wiser option. Hmm. 
Because if what if the wrong people get their hands on yeah. the right wisdom? Hmm. And I think that's jazz. Mm-hmm. And that's why collegiate jazz is a fucking joke. <laughs> uh, I'm really waiting for you to come out of your shell and tell me what you think about things. So stop, stop, you know, being so. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, man, uh, you know, uh, like, it's interesting for me to watch the same process happen with hip hop, right? Because there are things that are like um, spiritual about like how you freestyle your delivery and stuff like that. And then to have people break it down to like, this is how you spit bars, you know, like have college courses on it. On the one hand, Wait, I think... there's college courses about how to spit bars? Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay, continue on. We're just right. going to skip over thing. that. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> but I think on the one hand, like, writing it down gives it a different place in history. It helps to sustain it, but it's like a diminished version of it, sort of. Now we can record it. Yeah. Jazz didn't always have the option. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Blues didn't always have the option. Ifa from Yoruba of Nigeria. What were those folk songs like when that started? Right. That Atlantean-ass religion. They didn't have the option. We didn't have the option. So you think, you're saying that sort of like recording is better than um, making it like a course in a college or something like that? Much rather that people listen to what I was saying (laughs) than they read it off of a piece of paper and pretended like they listened. That's interesting. Hi, this is Valerie Cassell Oliver, curator of the exhibition The Dirty South Contemporary Art, Material Culture, and the Sonic Impulse. Occupying three floors at MCA Denver, The Dirty South makes visible the roots of Southern hip hop culture and reveals how the aesthetic traditions of the African American South have shaped the visual art and musical expression over the last 100 years. This exhibition features an intergenerational group of artists working in a variety of genres, from sculpture to painting and drawing to photography and film, as well as sound pieces and large-scale installation works. Head over to mcadenver.org visit and use the code TDS20. That's TDS20. For a 20% discount on general admission for this exhibition, which is on view until February 5th, 2023. Who's your favorite orator? You say orator? Mm-hmm. Uh, or just like, give me like three of your favorites. There ain't gotta be no order, just like in general. Who do I like here and speak? We can go one and one. <laughs> One of my heroes, mm-hmm. Melvin Van Peebles. I don't know. I'm familiar. Oh, do you know Mario Van Peebles? No, I don't know. He was like, uh, Mario Van Peebles was the ambassador of light-skinned pretty dudes in the in the 90s. He was in New Jack City and stuff like that. But his pop, Melvin, Gil Scott Heron said that he was an influence for doing like spoken word. Melvin? Yeah, he just passed away last year, but he was one of my biggest heroes. Melvin Van Peebles. There's a documentary on him called How to Eat Your Watermelon and White Company and Enjoy It. (laughs) I love every book. This sounds like some Robert Cole Scott shit right there. I love that. Yeah. What is it? Say that one more time. (laughs) How to Eat Your Watermelon and White Company and Enjoy It. I love that you're taking notes, man. (laughs) But Melvin was one of the ones. Like, he was, yeah. And there's a movie about him making his first movie that's called Badass with a whole bunch of asses after Badass. But um, yeah, yeah, he's somebody you were looking to. He had a tattoo, a dotted line across his neck that said cut here. Like he was not here to play, man. But he put out albums, he made films, he did stage. And uh, the thing that was most inspirational to me about him was that he was not going to let any condition stop him. Mm-hmm. Just small example, which I think is relevant to the kind of stuff we're talking about. Uh, when he was in his, I'm say, 30s, maybe early 20s, late 20s, he wanted to make film. He saw nothing that was supporting him as a black man making film in the U.S. He heard a rumor that in France, if you publish three novels, then you automatically get licenses from the city or the you know state or whatever to 
to make film. So he moved to Paris, didn't know French. What year? This would have been like early 60s. Learned French, wrote three novels, started making films. They got so much international acclaim that they heard of him here. And because he was Melvin Van Peebles, they thought he was a white Frenchman. So they <laughs> flew him back in for film festivals. Yeah. Bonk. Yeah, right. I hope. Bonk. <laughs> I'm glad that we have some kind of camera to see what you're doing when you're doing <laughs> the bonk. <laughs> anyway, you said we were exchanging. So who's who's one of your uh, heroes or favorite orators? Okay, I got to throw I gotta throw Muhammad Ali on the list, right? Uh, yeah. This is why. This bit of Muhammad Ali alone. Mm-hmm. He says, let's say. Is it? Because, you know, he was friends with this Irish interviewer, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've yeah, seen that, yeah. Right. And so they did a bunch of interviews together. Mm-hmm. So they talked when, when he was in prison a bunch. Mm-hmm. And so when he gets out of prison, after Vietnam War shit, he, he comes out. Well, well, Muhammad, Muhammad, well, you say, you know, the Muslim religion says, you know, you don't, you don't like white people like you hate white people why is that you know and he goes on and on i just want to say i love that you committed to the accent but i had to commit it was terrible but what i ever had to commit anyway he goes (laughs) he goes uh after a bunch of shit how it goes let's say you got ten thousand rattlesnakes right Hmm. he goes uh he goes okay so you got ten thousand rattlesnakes they they all coming up to your door now you know 100 of them are good and pure and got your back they got your back, ride or die, you know. Now, so do you open up your door and let 10,000 rattlesnakes in on the hope that the 100 will save you when one bite will kill you? Hmm. Or do you just close the door and say, I'm sorry, lady, I can't let you in? <laughs> Look, that bit by Muhammad. Yeah. Alone. Right. His gold. But also, I mean, he was a great poet. Hmm. He was a great singer. Hmm. That bit's gold. Yeah. And all, I think all of his bits are are pretty gold, you know, like, he just was so good about saying the hard truths mm-hmm. and making the people that he was saying hard truths to laugh about it. Yeah, I agree with that. And yeah, that's that's a it's a hard balance to strike. Like hold your boundaries, say the things that are real to you, um, without without backing away from it, but still without destroying the people around you. You know. There are a lot of people who hide behind that idea of, uh, I'm just real. I'm just telling the truth. If you can't handle this, and it's just sort of an excuse to to be a dick, you know, instead of like uh, trying to actually give truth to somebody. Oh, well, that's not our job anymore. I love to be a dick. Yeah. Well, because of this. Uh, speaking of pull quotes for this episode, I just want to. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I just don't like. It's not our job to teach nobody anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in a microaggression. You're on social media. Right. Ignorance is a farce. Mm-hmm. The internet exists. So, like, I don't believe in microaggression. It's just aggression. Mm-hmm. No. I have no responsibility to be nice to you. I grew up in Denver, and you're from Oklahoma. Go home. Well, it's interesting. I'm glad you say that. Cause, so, for me... Um, I do not find, I do not take the responsibility on for educating a stranger who tries to force himself into my space. Yeah, right? no way. Um, but people who I'm interacting with or I need to interact with on a regular basis, in those cases, uh, I'm going to at least educate them as to like what my boundaries are. If I like you, I'll do that. Hmm. But I don't like most people. <laughs> I like you. Thanks. I like everybody in this room, right but on. like... No, no, no. I don't like most people. Yeah. So, like, no, I, if I like you. Yeah. If I trust you enough that I will let you in and I assume that you can hear what my boundary is, I will tell you my boundary. Hmm. Otherwise, bonk. So you're basically hitting unsubscribe. Like, I'm not, you know, do you just, like, remove yourself from the space or you just, like, you know? Well, yes, I would much rather do that. Yeah. I would much rather do that than get into an argument that I can't possibly win in a country that refuses to represent us. Yeah, that's real. I would much rather just kick it with you. Yeah. Why would I kick it with them when I could just be kicking it with you? Right. I don't even got to worry about that with you. We could have a good time, go soul dance it. Also, I would like to say, <laughs> when I really started really, really messing with this cat, <laughs> I was watching him slide across a 
wood floor at Goose Town Tavern, and it was one of the flyest things I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. Funny, because almost every guest that we've had on, like at least half the guests, either I met on the dance floor or I've encountered on the dance floor. You know what I'm saying? So it's yeah, like you bad ass, man. You groove. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. I was joking about uh, like when I'm working on like a story or something, when I'm dancing, like, you know, working on like Michael Jackson spins or whatever, like suddenly things become clear. You know what I'm <laughs> saying? Or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like mid spin, I'll be like, oh. And then I have to like go to the side of the dance floor and like write down, the, you know, the notes or whatever. Huh. Okay. So you work in an art environment, your life is playing music outside of that. Um, I don't know, man, like, what's, what's important Wait a here? second, hold on. I work in an art environment, and what? Uh, your life is music outside of that, right? Because so, because um, you have to work in the structure of a place uh, that is not the art that you create, but it is an art environment. You were talking about some of that frustration. Because a lot of people, I think, that are gonna be listening are gonna be people who, um, who have their passion, that's their art, and then have like their day job that they don't care for as much. Oh. Um, so I'm, the question I was getting to was like, how do you balance that, right? Because you're surrounded by art in your day job, but it's not necessarily like, um, it's not your art, it's not your expression. And then outside of that, you get to go fully into your expression. So what is that, I don't know, what's that like for you? I would like to say, uh-huh. you don't live in art environments, you are art. Hmm. I think genre was made to intellectualize what musicians intuitively do. Genre of any art form Uh was made to intellectualize what art intuitively does. Mm -hmm. An artist was made to intellectualize the character that art holds. Mm -hmm. You are art. I don't exist in an art environment. Mm -hmm. I am art. And so, between music and them, Uh I'm unapologetically myself either way. Hmm? I have no time to play games. I know the stories of Corbet and Jonas Berger and Leonore Carrington and Max Ernst, and I sit and I research. Mm-hmm. Every art I encounter, I sit and I research. Degas, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Degas. So what does that do for you when you're researching and you're encountering? Is it like, is it feeding your soul? Is it, like, yeah, what is, what's the effect? It's made me decide that I cannot remove the art from the artist Hmm. because I don't believe in artist. I think artist is the intellectualization Hmm. of what those who are art are. And then there's product. Hmm. I think that I, um, unfortunately now, when I find out about the characters of some of these people, especially in an art museum or any museum, I cannot eliminate the things that that Degas did to women especially. Mm-hmm. I cannot eliminate the fascism of a Dolly, which we don't even have any Dolly on display, you know. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, I think about activism, because activism and artistry, I think, are very similar. I cannot eliminate the... Um, you, you know the racism of a of a Gandhi, hmm. and so working at the art museum has made me decide that I need to be better. Hmm. That's interesting, because I, as an artist, look, I want to have a damn good story by the end, hmm. but that does not mean that I want some grandiose thing. It just means I, I want a good story. You yeah. know, like. And I want that story not to be tainted with years of mistakes. So, like, I'm in my 30s. I got to make it at least another 40 years so that I can have 40 years of hopefully less mistakes. Hmm. Okay, so you brought up uh, not being able to separate the art, the person, the creator from the art. Um, and you brought up activism. Are those things connected for you as a creator? Absolutely. I think about uh, Nina Simone, mm-hmm. who says, uh, well, the artist's job is to reflect the times. Yeah. It's part of why I think museums are silly, because it's a, humans negating that they're nature. Things last forever. Conservation teams. Like, 
don't get me wrong, I love museums. Mm. I'm a museum junkie. But like, it doesn't make sense to have things last forever. Mm. But for me, it is that Nina Simone or that Robert Cole Scott, mm. that Corbet. I have a quote. Would yeah. you like to hear a quote? You can't, I was, you can't I was doing some research yeah. uh, at the museum earlier uh-huh. because I, I've fallen in love with Corbet. Let's see. Uh, um, Gustav Corbet says, Okay. And our so very civilized society is necessary for me to live the life of a savage. I must be free of even governments. The people have my sympathies. I must address myself to them directly. Hmm. Okay. There is no separation from being an artist to art. Yeah. You are art. Activism art is meant to reflect the times and we have no choice. You are art. Mm. You will always be an activist whether you want to be or not because your opinion matters Hmm. to those who are not art. So then what is your vision when you're creating art um, for how it affects people? Like what what do you want to happen when people encounter? I'm never thinking about affecting people. That's interesting. Okay. I make art because something is on my mind or something is going on with me, it is, that is the language. Music is the language, you know? Mm. So then I just, um, I just write, Hmm. you know? And whatever comes out is what's coming out. Yeah. I don't care how people perceive it. If they don't like it, okay, you don't like it. I don't care. Somebody's probably going to like it. And if people don't like it, I don't actually care. I Mm. didn't write it for anybody else. I never write for anybody else. I'm just writing. I'm not yeah. writing even for myself. I'm writing. and um, But also, you know, many, many artists have said it's not the artist's job to be the critic, hmm. even though I encourage everybody to be a critical thinker. Please <laughs> be a critical thinker. Well, so it's interesting to talk about, like, uh, creating art for yourself, but then also being an activist. And I wonder what you know. I want to know what you think about that link uh, or if it's linked or, what you know, just what your thoughts are around that. I'll say... Um, I'll say George Floyd gets assassinated. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't want to go to the protest. Mm-hmm. But I ended up there because a homie was going out, and that homie is in a lot more danger going out to those things than I was. Mm-hmm. So I went. And I saw what was happening physically. Mm-hmm. Like, you cannot deny your eyes, unfortunately. You can try. And I have terrible vision. These are sunglasses, not glasses. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, so like seeing it. I was at the protest for a while and then I found myself sitting at the piano in my apartment and I said, for a ship or a sail made of cotton, for a chain on brown skin bodies, to a land unknown, it belongs to me. Real life stories of history, cause we built you your shit for free. Hmm. It wasn't a thing where I was like, I need this to affect people. Yeah. It was a thing where I was like, uh, yo, like, this is affecting me like this. Right. I had a, a young 20-something-year-old white woman call me a Uncle Tom huh. holding a Black Lives Matter sign the day after the ceasefire at the George Floyd protest. Mm. That was my reaction. Mm-hmm. It wasn't for to affect her. Right. It was for me to write this because that's how I was feeling, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, so that's I like, that's dope that you said that, man. Because so for me, some part of art is catharsis, right? It's like working out whatever's going on in my soul. Um, but then another part of it is, how do I communicate these subtleties of humanity to someone else? You know, um, and I and I don't, I don't think one is more valid than the other. Like some people are committed to one or the other. Some people do both. But I think it's just about like what's important to you in your artistic journey. You know, why do you make music? Uh, I have such a hard relationship with music, man. Me too. I hate it. Yeah. It feels like a, an, a, an abusive spouse or something. You can only hate something so fiercely that you love so much. Oh, it's true. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly the biggest part of my life. But, you know, uh, for me, it, it's those two things that I was saying. Like, the one part was, so I often say that art is a way to take something intangible and make it tangible so that you can wrestle with it, think through it, et cetera, right? So, like, um, writing in any form, whether it's music, whether it's comic books, whatever it is, is me trying to grab onto this thing that is intangible, one that so that I can wrestle with it, secondarily so that I can work through whatever my emotions are around it, but then 
a third so that someone else can benefit from the fact that I've made this intangible thing tangible. Mm. Mm -hmm. How about you when you're writing? What's going on? I want to encourage people to experience themselves. Hmm. The only way that I've found that makes sense to me to be able to do that is for me to be sure of who I am hmm. first and foremost. And the only way I've found that I can communicate with myself unabashedly, candidly, obnoxiously myself about is music. Yeah. And so logically it seems like if I talk to myself that way with that language and I put it out into the world, some people will feel encouraged to be able to talk to themselves that way. And I can encourage people. I can't help them to do it. Mm -hmm. But I can encourage them to experience themselves. I love that. MCA Denver at the Holiday Theater is a hub for the arts located in this historic 400-seat theater. We aim to realize one-of-a-kind creative experiences for audiences that spark curiosity, challenge conventions, inspire, and delight. Visit mcadenver.org to learn more about the robust schedule of museum-driven and collaborative programming. You said that we would talk about fear. So in that process, because you've talked about like once you create something, people might not like it, they might like it, you know, you're okay with whichever. But um, at what point in your process do you experience fear? And when you do, what do you do to get through it? I think the biggest fear that must exist is that I'm not being as truthful with myself as I can be. Hmm. Which then all of a sudden exists in like this weird insecurity that I'm questioning, are you just being like insecure or not? Is this ego versus it or not? Right. What's going on? Are you feeling okay? Like, go sit down. You need to get a break, you know? <laughs> now, how do I get through it? I think I, think I play shows. Hmm. That is the one part of the process where I find that I need some sort of a relationship mm -hmm. with an external source hmm. is when I get to that darkest point of fear. Yeah. But I struggle with depression pretty hard anyway, you mm -hmm. know, like, and like, I think we've talked about that before, mm -hmm. you know, like, but like in that, like, the only thing I know that really a, is a, is a reasonable counterweight to depression. Yeah. is homies. Hmm. And so like, if I'm playing a show, yeah, like it's Wednesday night, right? If it was last Wednesday or next Wednesday, then E-Man would be there. Hmm. If I was feeling depressed, I can go down to the metal lock. I'm sitting with E-Man. Yeah. And if E-Man goes, ooh, even once, then I'm like, okay, maybe I'm not doing the wrong thing. Huh. Hmm. That's cool. You know, so for me, I'm fundamentally an introvert. Um, but it's interesting that you said the thing about like shows being a cure for working through the fear, uh, because I was surprised to find out how much I love doing shows. Like had me at a party making small talk, nah. But like, oh no, right? But connecting with people <laughs> out of my heart uh, from the stage. So uh, one of the first ways that I learned that was uh, it was shortly after I moved to Denver, and um, I saw I was like, okay, I need to do some shows. I need to. I had a dread, I didn't wanna do shows, but I was like, I need to get on stage. And so I went to Dazzle, cause they had a poetry open mic with a jazz trio. On Lincoln. Yeah, yeah, it was when I was on Lincoln, yeah. And they were, uh, the jazz trio would improv behind everybody, right? And so I go there and there's maybe like six people uh, performing and a few people, and like not a lot of people there. So I go on stage and uh, I do my first poem and it is, terrible like i really bombed like do you I, remember the poem no <laughs> i wanted to hear I it scorched it from my mind <laughs> but and I, I don't think the poem it was just uh i think maybe i hadn't you know i just hadn't been on stage in a while so i was really rusty and i just didn't connect with the crowd well but it was so bad that like uh one of the waitresses was like oh it'll be okay baby like that kind of thing right you know uh she was a sister and so uh mo uh, she had short hair? Mo. Okay, yeah. I used to work at Dazzle. Oh, word, okay, yeah. On Lincoln, yeah. yeah. That was Mo. Word, Guaranteed. okay. Well, so she was very, like, encouraging, but at the same time, I was like, oh, she has pity on me, right? So <laughs> Me too. <laughs> right. But there were so few people 
that I could go again, right? So I got to go again. Um, second time I went, it was great. Like, Do you remember that poem? Mm, man, we're talking like 14 years ago. Nope. All right. I remember some of the chorus, but it was it was a lot. I'm just poem. trying to bully you into doing a poem. Oh, because you sang? Is that what we're doing? Okay. No, I don't give a fuck about that. I just I like your poems, is all. Because your Appreciate art. It. Yeah. You know, if I could like weasel my way into hearing some of your art, I would love that. Well, yeah, it was most definitely about heartbreak because that was my whole life. But you got a good poem about heartbreak now? I have plenty of raps about it. I will do something. I will share something with you. But what I'll say is that to end that story, I went that second time, and uh, it went so well that the guy who was hosting, he was coming down from Boulder to host, and he wasn't really digging it. So he was like, uh, "Hey, man, uh, that was really cool. Like, uh, if if you like to do like a like a co-hosting thing or like you host every other week kind of thing, I'd be totally into that." So I went from like not doing shows to hosting the show. <laughs> And that was terrifying, but I did it, and it made me, like, I loved it, and I felt, like, healed and restored. And so, like, the fact that you're bringing up, like, being on stage, being something that heals you through fear, I think is really dope. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love to hear that. And that's why I started the whole residency game, man. I started doing residencies just because yeah. one musician who I really respect told me I was too bossy on stage. Huh. Which is true. All right. I've just decided I don't care these days. At least you're aware, I guess. <laughs> well, the thing is, I've, a definitive vision is something that most people don't have. That's definitely so true. So if I can look over and be like, you need to break on two and come back in on the end of three, that's something that most people can't say definitively. Look at a band and go, mm, This that. is the confidence that I was alluding to when you came on stage with uh, my musicians. Like That's the thing that I admired is that you came out so clearly and were able to like bring them into the vision of what you were doing very quickly. I thought it was dope. Yeah, I mean, like, James Brown was an asshole. Yeah, and Miles Davis. Look, that's <laughs> Cicely Tyson book. You read that? <laughs> no. I'll give it to you. Yes. Bummer. Huh. Don't know if I can listen to Miles really. Right oh, now. wow. Uh, <laughs> but I will say, I got into residency gig comes that one dude said, you too bossy. He didn't say it like that. He said, you're too bossy. And uh, <laughs> so then I was like, well, I've been rehearsing a band for about a decade. But if I started doing residencies, no rehearsals, like four-hour gigs, no rehearsals, mm -hmm. pay 500 bucks, but you don't rehearse a band. So, like, right, you get, you get 100 bucks, you don't got to do right. any no rehearsals. That's right. a different game. And then I feel like I had to learn how to communicate in that. So, mm -hmm. like, it, look, the live aspect of that definitely made me who I am huh. right now. And also, it was always composition with the crowd. Mm. Like I was writing on stage, so it was always like, how they were reacting yes. inherently was probably involved with that. But I, truthfully, I mean, they could have been booed and I would have been happy. <laughs> like I'd be like, oh, you hate that I'm singing an Elvis song all weird right now? I love it. <laughs> I love it. How you doing, Gerard? <laughs> <laughs> I do love the idea of um, making the audience feel like this is our thing. I'm directing it. I'm doing what I want to do, but it's we're doing this together because uh, I think the the end result of that is like you know you might have had experience but like to do a show and then have like strangers come up and hug you after the show please don't touch me <laughs> especially these days right but like just always but you know okay word but <laughs> it's a very interesting thing to me that um people can have an experience where they're like in the audience and feel like they know me or they feel like they're connected to me in some way before like, which they didn't have before they came you know I don't like that. <laughs> you don't like them feeling connected to you, or you don't like them feeling like they understand you in a different way? I don't like them feeling like they know me, okay. which is what you said. I that think. is. Yeah. I don't like them feeling like they know me. Mm -hmm. Now, it's different. It's a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. There's some folk I meet, and they say, hey, nice clothes. They keep walking down the street, and there's some folks who are like, I really like your coat. Right. Right. I'm like, thank you. And like, no, I really like your coat. Yeah. I really like your coat. I really like your coat. All those voices. Okay. Yeah, and I'm like, 
cool thanks like you know right. what i mean like you know and that that's how i kind of feel it shows is like there's some folks who can come up and be like move right and, but you could feel that energy that's what I'm that talking vibration exists yeah exists you could be like oh yo thank you blessings yeah. blessings you know and then there's some folks who are like oh my god you're so badass and yeah like, thanks homie like, no i mean like you're seriously so badass yeah. that and those are anything. the people who usually want to hug me no. i don't like them now i feel you that that means nothing to me because uh you know like it, it is it's empty it's, they're just gassing you up and uh they want something more they're not actually like feeling the connection it's just like either it's um you were just on stage and they want to feel important to their friends so they're like oh yeah i talked to that person or they're trying to steal your attention or approval or cool or whatever. But there's a lot of co-opting of black cool all over. Yeah, okay, yeah. I have a question. Hmm. What's the difference between jam bands and funk? Uh, one is good. One composes. <laughs> ah. One pretends to compose black music. Ah. One composes black music, one pretends to compose black music. And there's, there's white funk bands yeah. that compose right. black music. But then there's those who don't compose. And, it just and they goes say, on. Oh, yeah, we're like funk jam. Right. No Shut form. No, it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> it just goes on forever and ever. Random solos. Yeah. <laughs> it's something I think about often. I swear, after people listen to this episode, you're going to give them so much stuff to Google between all the names of artists and like different uh, styles of music and history. Like, this is, this is dope, man. I appreciate this conversation. I appreciate you having me, you know. Look, you want to hear something cool? Yeah. So there's a new there's a new photography exhibit at the museum, hmm. and there's a picture of a lady I I never heard of, and I I felt like a fool. I should have been known about this lady. Before there was Sarah Vaughn, before there was Ella Fitzgerald, there was a woman called Maxine Sullivan. Huh. She sang with both of the Dorsey's band. She sang with with Frank Sinatra. She sang with everybody. She's like the OG of that entire before Ivy Anderson with Duke Ellington. She's yeah. like the OG. And there's this picture of her, so I look at what happened. I find out about all, all about her and. Uh, Listen to her quite a bit today. She has the cleanest voice. Hmm. She was a flugelhorn player. You know what's in this box? That's a flugelhorn. Hmm. It's so funny. You don't you don't think about somebody. First of all, I know because I've researched it. I know quite a few ladies who played the horn. Mm -hmm. But can anybody in this room name a black woman trumpet player or mm. any woman trumpet player? That's interesting. The first one I think about is Cynthia, who played with Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, yeah. Cynthia Williams. Okay. Cynthia, go, blah, 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 you know, dance to the music. Cynthia, yeah, that's the first one I think about. But, yeah, I didn't know about this woman, Maxine Sullivan, and the flugelhorn also. This is, we're talking before Ella, so we're talking like 40s, 30s, mm -hmm. you know? And she was playing flugelhorn with her dad's band? That's cool. Before Chuck Mangione went, like she's sitting there playing with the big band with her pops, playing the flugelhorn. Wow. That's cool. That is. I like to represent that because that's a good thing about, yeah. you know, something. Hmm. Okay. So what are you drawing inspiration from? What's, what are you listening to? What are you watching? What's inspiring you creatively these days? Everything that's not me is huh. inspiring. The, the sound baffles on the wall are inspiring. The museum taught me how to look at things. Huh. Music taught me how to listen to things. And, you know, cats like you taught me how to how to move with things, you hmm. know? like So, like, everything is inspiring that is not me. And that's what I draw inspiration from. Simple pleasures are the best. Ah. We just went through a whole Bobby McFerrin thing just recently. Oh, yeah. I love Bobby. Yeah. Simple pleasures are the best. Yeah, yeah. That's what <laughs> Right. How <laughs> that dude, man. All right. Uh, okay. Well, what what else, what do you what you got coming? Like, is there anything you want to promote? You got stuff coming out? You working on stuff? What you doing? What's next? I might have a piece in the Denver Art Museum. That's kind of wild. Okay. It's um. This is is the second. Of, uh, I don't know if it will be or not. Maybe it will be. Maybe it won't. But that's good. We're making it mysterious. What's that thing? It's a series of things I've been working on for a while called attention span because everybody lost their attention span, you know? Yeah. And so they're all like, they're like these 45 second songs, 30 second songs, really. I say 45 seconds, I'm lying. <laughs> they're all 30 second songs. And, uh, yeah. And so I think Bum Buddy Asher, he, he made a video after, after Gerard passed. Okay. 
um, to one of those. And so I submitted it to this showcase the art museum has coming up of, of art museum cats, which is hip, kind of like Baltimore. Okay. So that's a possibility we'll look forward to. Um, where can people find your music and look, Bandcamp, Spotify is trash. Yeah. Well, look, well, yes, but it was that one where Bette Miller, you know, it's probably like 2010, 2009. I don't know. Twitter was, Twitter was big by then. So probably 2010, you mm. know, and, uh, Bette Midler does a tweet about Spotify and she posted like a screenshot of her check. It was like 50 bucks and her, her song had been like this big movie. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think Millions of plays. Jay-Z took does. his music off because of that, and uh, Taylor Swift, and there were a lot of people, a lot of like, well-established yeah. musicians. Taylor Swift and I have the same birthday. Yeah? December 13th. Me and uh, Louis Armstrong have the same birthday. December? August 4th. August 4th? Yeah. Happy belated. Yeah, thanks. I'm still accepting gifts. <laughs> well, uh, it's all right. you, you want this battery that's in my pocket? <laughs> or... <laughs> <laughs> nah, uh, that, nah, that quick jam was the gift. Okay, well, uh, thank you. Thank you for talking to us, man. It was really, really dope. Hey, yo, thank you for having me. All right, well, thanks to our listeners. Please be sure to subscribe to How Art Is Born wherever you get your podcast for more episodes. If you can, leave a review. It really helps us out. Check out MCA Denver on YouTube and subscribe there, too, for behind-the-scenes clips from today's episode. Don't forget to visit MCA Denver's current exhibition, The Dirty South, on view now. 